Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Stories of Special Forces Operators podcast. Listen to some of the bravest and toughest people on the planet share their stories. Sit back and enjoy. Hey folks, welcome back. We have a great guest today by the name of Robin Horsfall. Robin Horsfall, it's H-O-R-S-F-A-L-L. Robin, you want to look him up at robinhorsfall.co.uk. Definitely check it out. Who is he? Well, we're going to find out in a minute because he is a special forces in the UK. He was born in the UK following a divorce from his birth father. His mother, Hazel, married his stepfather who adopted him and gave him the name Horsfall. Came from a broken family life, adversely affected his education. So he left school in 1972 at the age of 15 and joined the army as a boy soldier. We're going to explore that a little bit more. He also became a full member of the Parachute Regiment in 1974 and served three tours of Northern Ireland. In 1978, he volunteered for SAS selection and passed on his second attempt. So we're going to talk about that. How did he overcome not being able to pass the first time? He was a member of the SAS counterterrorist team that assaulted the Iranian embassy in London in 1980, Operation Nimrod, you probably heard of it, helping to rescue the 19 hostages who had been held for six days. We'll also be talking about that. Folks, I don't know how long the interview would go because he's got an incredible life. <laughs> if you look at his history, you can go to his website and find out. He had three operational tours that we mentioned, talks about his SAS selection, uh, also Operation Nimrod. Then he became he went into Operation Sandy Wanderer, qualified as a Royal Marine sniper marksman. Then he went to Operation Mikado Falklands and a host of more. Also as a bodyguard for some incredible families. We'll talk about a little bit later. We'll talk about martial arts as well, what he thinks about that. And his books, which you highly recommend, his book about himself, autobiography is Fighting Scared, Para, Mercenary, SAS, Sniper, and Bodyguard. But he's got a lot of other books as well, Last Words of the Wise Old Paratrooper, More Words of the Wise Old Paratrooper, and his most recent book, Warrior Poet, A Soldier's Song, Wise Old Paratrooper. All right, folks, before we get started, you know what to do. Share, subscribe, hit that like button. You know we like it. Let's not waste any more time. Welcome to the show, Robin Horsfall. Welcome, sir. Good to be here, Carlos. Thank you so much for doing this. I don't know how it is in the UK, but I know I say it here to all the soldiers here. Um, but since you're related to us in the UK as the US, thank you very much for your service, Robin. Thank you. So this I always like to start off with the history a little bit. What motivated you? I know in the US, we always ask, hey, did Rambo motivate you? We've had some guys say Rambo, some guys say John Wayne from the old Green Beret movies. But what about you? <laughs> what motivated you? What motivated me to join the army was um, a broken home, really. Um, I was a bright kid. I was in a good school, but my parents' um, marriage started to fall to pieces. And um, I needed to escape from my failures at school and the problems at home. And um, in 1972 in Britain, the school leaving age was 15. And so uh, at the age of 14, uh, realizing that my life was going nowhere, 
um, I walked into an Army Careers Information Office and um, volunteered to join the Army. And they said, you're too young, but if you fill in this papers, um, you can join next year when you're 15. So um, I filled in the papers. I think my mother was relieved. <laughs> and um, uh, she, she signed the paperwork. And I went off um, to do some tests. I tried to join the Royal Army Medical Corps. And ended up joining the parachute regiment. I'm not sure exactly how that happened, but I think it was a case of um, you're not bright enough to do this or we don't think you're good enough to do this. And so we'll send you in this direction, which you're more suitable for. So I was posted to an infantry junior leaders battalion, which means you're being trained to be the non-commissioned officers of the future. And you spend two years and three months in that what is technically a military college. And um, after that, uh, when you're 17 and a half, you're then qualified to be an adult soldier and you join your parent unit and begin regular adult service. Wow, that's amazing. That young of an age. Let me ask you this. I'm always curious. um, Did you have any siblings? Yeah, I was the oldest though. Um, My Mm. mother had me when she was uh, just 17 uh, in 1957. And um, I had uh, young, two younger brothers and a younger sister, three younger brothers and a younger sister. Oh, um, wow. And um, uh, my, uh, my first brother followed me into the military when he was 16. Um, he's, uh, he's done extraordinarily well in his life, did 22 years in the British Army. Uh, my next brother, he, um, he's now a scientist in France. My sister still married um, and lives in uh, lives in the UK. Still, has done very well. And uh, my youngest brother Tony is um, uh, a financier. So, in spite of our um, our mother died when she was thirty seven years old of cancer. So um, uh, we were pretty much left to our own devices. I was twenty at the time, and they were all younger. Um, but in spite of that, we've all done extraordinarily well, which is something to be proud of. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's interesting I asked that because I know, again, my background's in psychology and I've asked a lot of the special forces and so far, I think over 95% have been either the oldest or the only, (laughs) Uh, which which kind of makes sense, right? Tend to be the most driven. I think that's true. People have asked me what motivated me and um, I think I was driven by a deep-seated insecurity and I need to to prove myself. Not to Mm -hmm. prove that I was better than others, but to prove that I was as good as others, because my my early days were were one of very much of isolation and loneliness and intimidation. Um, I didn't have a good father figure, especially in my formative years. Uh, so consequently, I didn't learn how to be a man. I didn't learn how to laugh at myself. I didn't have the confidence that wrestling with your dad on the floor can give to a young man. Um, so I was too sensitive and consequently, um, it isolated me from the group. The other side of that is that, um, my stepfather, uh, his math method of dealing with my issues was to beat it out of me. And when you beat somebody into silence, you take away their ability to negotiate and you take away their ability to make friends. And that was a huge problem for me. I'd probably probably right through my life, even, even today, although I do have friends. Wow. That's intense stuff. You're so right. Because I know one of the things, um, especially in those formative years, 
it's really important to be able to engage with your parents in roughhouse playing. I think it's underestimated how important that is. Yeah. And you made a beautiful point about laughing at yourself because we see a lot of shooting incidents. We see a lot of fights that get escalated to yeah. places they shouldn't. No, that's true. Yeah, it's, it's extremely insightful. Let me ask you this. Um, I guess I'll, I'll ask one more family question, then we'll move on because I am curious. Which one of your parents was driven? Um, my my mother very much so. Um, she was um, she was a, 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 an extraordinarily clever woman, um, but she suffered badly with eczema, and so she was forced to leave school, high school, um, because her eczema and the fact that it cracked and bled, and they didn't have the treatments then that they have now, um, was uh, a problem for the other students in the class. So um, in spite of the fact that she was pretty smart, um, she didn't have the opportunity to develop that. Um, she was forced to leave school because of a medical condition, which was sad. So that insecurity, I think, was what led to her um, feeling unloved, feeling unwanted and um, getting pregnant at a very early age. Um, fortunately, she got married at a very early age because in the 1950s, that was extraordinarily important. And um, but I never knew my father, the one she married, um, because he spent my um, formative years in prison. Oh, all right. That's interesting with the moms. I know anybody who comes from a background like yours, very difficult background, always tends to have somebody that was driven somewhere, whether it was an uncle, a mom, a dad, a mentor, somebody that was driven. Uh, it's fascinating because all five of you turned out wonderfully. So it's it's. It definitely shows that she has some incredible fortitude and resilience as well. All of you I do. I think we inherited her brains as well as her good looks. <laughs> That's right. You did remind me a little bit of Sean Connery looking at your younger pictures. So I don't know. Yeah. But Sean uh, Connery is an actor and I'm the real thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> well, let's move over now. We're heading over to the parachute regiment you're in there. Um, you served three tours of Northern Ireland. Tell us a little bit about that. How was that experience? Yeah, I did uh, three tours with the parachute regiment, two with the SAS. Um, mm. So that was five tours. Um, a lot of people around the world don't know the history of Northern Ireland, and I won't give you a complete breakdown now. But um, a lot of people imagine that they know something about Ireland, they, especially in the USA, but they should really read up on the history of Ireland so that they understand that it's a partitioned country with two sections. Um, the British Army went there in 1969 to stop the Catholic community and the Protestant community from killing each other. And so they were stuck in the middle supporting the police as a, um, as a force that was there to stop people murdering one another. And uh, that job went on for 30 years. Um, as it progressed, the, um, the soldiers became the target rather than and, and part of the problem. And... Um, and we would patrol the streets waiting uh, day after day, waiting to be shot at, waiting to be hit by an IED. Um, and, um, yeah, it was, um, it, was, uh, it was a job that I'd been trained to do from the age of 15. And I was with the paras, you know, I was with the airborne. So um, it, was, it was why I existed. It was, it was what I lived for. So I have no regrets about being there or doing it. And I think we actually prevented a civil war and saved an awful lot of lives. Is that probably where you're engaged in your first gun battle, I'm assuming? 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, my first gun battle wasn't as much a gun battle as um, as uh, being uh, on the uh, the top of a Land Rover with my head stuck out of a, a turret at the top and having one single shot by a sniper go over the top of my head. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> and then following up and finding absolutely nothing. Um, but I had several several small incidents in Northern Ireland because most of it. Um, wasn't gun battles in the conventional sense. It would the the IRA um, in the early seventies tried to come out and take on the British Army um, head to head, and um, and and essentially it was amateurs up against professionals, and they got absolutely destroyed. And so they then resorted to snipers, to uh, improvised explosive devices, into murdering people in pubs and bars and um, general, general mayhem and murder uh, in order to further their cause. Um, if you go back into the politics of it, it gets complicated and it's worth reading. It's worth reading about for sure. Yeah, it's always, that's one of the things I always tell people, life is much more complicated than they think. Yeah. Um, now you went into, in, I think it was 1978, you volunteered for SAS selection. What motivated you there? I know in the Americans, a lot of times, they, I keep hearing the recurring <laughs> theme of, I used to see the guys walking around <laughs> when, when they were just army, army infantry and they would see the Green Berets walking around and, and just said they looked like they had much more freedom, much more control. Whatever it was, they attracted to them. What attracted you to the SAS? Um, really, I, I volunteered to go to the SAS to cock a snoot at authority. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I had um, I'd spent three years um, with the Paras um, three and a half years with the Paras, and I was in a special unit uh, called the Vigilant Platoon, uh, which was a guided missile section, um, which kept my promotion back, but I was a, a, a considered to be a senior private after three years. And uh, when our unit disbanded because a better missile came in called Milan, um, they told us we could go back to our previous units. Now, there are three battalions in the Parachute Regiment, one, two, and three, and mine was two. And I wanted to return to my parent battalion uh, because that's where my heart was. And uh, they said, yeah, that's fine. And then they changed their mind. They broke their promise. And uh, they said, look, you're going to be in a one power rifle company. You're going to go back to being a private under the command of a 19 year old Lance Corporal. And uh, but don't worry, you'll get promoted really quickly. And um, but they've broken their promise. So I thought, well, I know there's something you can't stop me doing. So I went to the battalion clerk's office and filled in the voluntary papers to go to the special air service. Now, the average age to get in was 27. And somebody Ooh. told me that I was far too young and I'd be back with my tail between my legs. But I put the papers in anyway. And, um, and I set off in 1978 to uh, join the special air service in Hereford in England. And... Um, and on the first, uh, the, the, the SAS selection lasts a year. Um, the first month is in the mountains with the final week of that month um, carrying weight over the mountains alone. Um, the weight increases from 35 pounds to 55 pounds over five days. And the distances increase. So the five days is equivalent to doing six marathons over five days over the mountains alone with weight on your back. That's essentially six, what it is. Six yeah. marathons? Yeah. The final march is 40 miles. Yeah. Oh. Uh, if you pass that, you go on to doing uh, continuation training in the jungle. 
where you live in four or five man groups and you live in the jungle for a month. What jungle did you guys back. go to? If I can ask. I went, I went to Belize on, on my selection. I went to Belize in Central America. Not a bad place. Um, which is a horrendous jungle because oh, really? it's, uh, it's not primary jungle, it's secondary jungle. So it's, it's a lot of thorn and bramble and um, um, secondary growth. So you don't have those big, huge 250-foot trees everywhere. You have 50-year-old, 50, 100-year-old um, vegetation, uh, which, is, um, which is a lot harder to live in, and it has a, has a lot more insects. The thing about the jungle is everything wants to eat you, and it's not the big things that want to eat you. It's the tiny little things. It's the mosquitoes and the leeches and the ticks and the bugs and the ants and the fungi. And, um, and all the bacteria in the world. So you're just lunch for every small creature in the world. <laughs> and you learn, you learn to live. I actually loved, loved the jungle. I enjoyed it a lot. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. It was um, away from the, um, from the bullying boots and smart uniforms and doing real soldiering in the way it should be done, um, navigating, patrolling, uh, using your weapons, um, living off the land. Um, and that was marvellous. And then SS selection goes on to combat survival, where you learn to live off the land, you learn to live in cold climates, wet climates, dry climates, and you also learn to escape and evade enemies. And then you do your parachuting if you're not already a paratrooper. And then you get your cat badge after six months, and you're on probation for another six months where you learn a personal skill and a troop skill. And then after a year, then you're actually qualified. <laughs> Wow. The whole process of what, two or three years? Uh, well, it took a year. And a then year, you're allowed okay. to stay in for another two years before you reassess. Wow. Now, what happened? You said the second attempt. What happened the very first time then? Yeah, I just wasn't ready, mentally ready. Mm -hmm. um, I got to the fifth day of test week and um, I was thinking about the 40-mile march the next day rather than just the job I was involved with. Um, there are photographs uh, in... Um, in my, on my webpage of me on the first uh, attempt and on the second attempt where I had four or five months regular training in the mountains, it looks like the difference between a, a rather uh, young, chubby, uh, fit paratrooper to a special forces soldier. And you can see the change, the thickness of the neck, the, the shallowness of the cheeks. The athlete had come out of me because I'd spent four months um, just working in the mountains, getting ready to have another go. Yeah, folks, if you want to see that picture, you can go to Robin Horseful, H-O-R-S-F-A-L-L dot C-O dot U-K. That's the website you want to go check out. Uh, you can get his books there as well, folks, if you like. Uh, the book is Fighting Scared, Para, Mercenary, SAS, Sniper, Bodyguard. And, of course, his latest book is Warrior Poet, A Soldier's Songs. Um, so definitely go check out that website. That's that's intense stuff. I mean, that's a lot. I've never heard what you guys have been through. And I know you were in, because the last time we interviewed at SAS, he's 37, 38. So his obviously his experience is just a few, about a decade ago compared to yours, yeah. which was a few decades ago. No offense. Um, so it's interesting. It's changed a lot, I'm assuming. So I think the selection process is, has, has, has changed very little. It's oh. still pretty much the same. Yeah. Well, that's good then, I guess, right? Yeah. Let me ask you this. Um, do you remember your first deployment as an SAS soldier? Uh, yeah, I do, actually. Um, uh -oh. <laughs> I, I came back from the um, 
I came back from the jungle, finished selection, passed, and uh, discovered that I had a tropical disease called leishmaniasis. And it was um, a rather severe form called Brazilianis, which meant that uh, if it wasn't cured, that my mucous membranes would break down over my body over the next 10 years and I would die. So I um, suddenly ended up spending three months in hospital um, getting, um, uh, what's it called, pentastam, an antimonial drug every day to kill this um, to kill this bug that was inside my blood. Um, but it worked. And uh, I joined the squadron um, just before Christmas on de- in December uh, 1979 in Northern Ireland. And there I was expecting to join, join up with my special forces team at last to get on the ground to do my job. But it was just before Christmas. So I got over to Northern Ireland and um, got ready, uh, all keyed up. And... Um, when I got there, everybody was drunk for two weeks <laughs> over Christmas. So um, not being very astute and political, um, after my, my squadron commander came to me and asked me how things were going, and I said, well, not really well, I said. They said, I've, I've turned up to do a job, and uh, everybody's drunk. <laughs> um, and not only did not only were my unit drunk, but the IRA were out drunk. Everybody sort of took Christmas off and said, we're not going to fight the war over Christmas. We're all going to... We're going to have an unofficial ceasefire. <laughs> but I'm not much of a drinker. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> I was far too young and far too focused, and I didn't know how to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> how old were you when you were when, when the SES at that point? Um, I, I was badged. I got my cat badge just before my 22nd birthday. Oh, wow. So you definitely yeah. defied the odds by five years. I was very young. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. You said the average age was 27. Yeah. That's the thing I, I don't. I've interviewed a couple of guys. I don't know if you're familiar with the Mac V Sogs over here. Uh, Mac V Sogs are like the uh, first original Green Beret in the Vietnam War. Oh, yes. Now yeah. 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 And I interviewed a couple of those guys. But when you hear their stories, and then it, then it dawns on me, he's like, wait a minute, you were 21. <laughs> you were 20 years old in these kind of battles. And now it's, it's amazing <clears throat> to me. Well, don't tell a 17 year old he's not a man. Because he is, he's a young man. That's all. We oh, should absolutely. never treat our children like like we should never train our children to be children. We should train our children to be adults. Um, so when um, if you if you treat somebody like a child until they're sixteen, seventeen, you can't suddenly turn around and say, "Now I want you to be a man." You've got to train them to be adults right from the start and expect them to take responsibility and teach them how to do that. There's a tendency in the modern world uh, to try to keep our children like puppies, and we shouldn't do that. We should uh, we should give them tasks, we should give them jobs, and we should make them grow up quickly. Absolutely, absolutely, it's it's amazing. Like I said, when I hear those stories and how they went through that stuff, it's like unbelievable. Now, only a few months later, you were already in your first operation after having your little party <laughs> in December. You went to Operation Nimrod. Yeah, uh, that, was that your first big operation? Then, I'm assuming. Um, with the with the special forces, yeah. I mean, the first operation I took part in was Operation Nimrod. Really, I mean, um, Northern Ireland was um, was um, um, was a was a separate op. But uh, mm. yeah, uh, Nimrod took place in April May uh, 1980, and um, we had uh, we we rotated through the counter-terrorist team. Each squadron rotated through for six months at a time. So every two years, you got to be the counter-terrorist team again. 
So it wasn't a special unit formed from a special unit. It was just a regular job that everybody rotated through. And we'd only taken over the job a few weeks before. And um, we were ready to do an exercise this day. And information came in. It was only 10 days after the um, after Delta Force had attempted to rescue the American hostages in the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. And unfortunately, the operation was big, it's complicated, and it didn't work out. So in many ways, the counter-terrorist feeling across the world was um, the morale was very, very low. People had felt that they'd done their absolute best and they couldn't defeat terrorism. It was all going wrong. And then we got this situation in London where six Arabistani terrorists trained by Saddam Hussein in Iraq attempted, uh, did take over the Iranian embassy in London. And they captured 23 hostages and uh, said and gave deadlines. And it was the classic case that we'd actually prepared and trained for. The building had 54 rooms, five floors, and a squadron of us uh, were on the ground two days later. And on the sixth day, they threw a body out and they, they executed uh, the charge d'affaires, a man called Lavazani, threw the body out the front door. And 40 minutes later, we went into the building uh, we killed five terrorists, captured one, and rescued 19 hostages alive. So um, it was a good day. But the big thing about it, of course, is it was live on television. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, I remember that. That was intense stuff. Let me ask you this. Um, do you remember what you were thinking when you were going into the building, or was it just too automatic to even? <clears throat> no, I remember very clearly um, approaching the back door, which was my entry point. Because people are, there were, there's a whole squadron of us and 48 of us, 48 of us assaulted the building. But the television wow. coverage only shows eight going over the front balcony where the cameras were. That's they right. don't see the roof. They don't see the back door, the real ba rear balcony or the basement. Um, but I do remember very clearly um, walking towards the back door and thinking to myself, make sure you do your job. Make sure you don't make any mistakes. Everybody's relying on you to do your part. Do your part and do it properly. You know what you're doing and um, take it as it comes. Um, as that happened, um, we were compromised early on our approach to the building. Somebody who was abseiling down the back of the building, his foot went through a window. Our approach was compromised, so we had to go early. And on my door, we had, didn't have the explosives ready on the door, so... Uh, my partner went through the through the door with an eight-pound sledgehammer straight through the back doors, the um, French doors there. And um, the guy who was um, coming down the back, whose foot had gone through the window, got stuck on his rope. The other guys coming down beside him went through the windows, threw in their pyrotechnics, their flashbangs, set fire to the curtains. The curtains are now burning. The guy's hanging above the window. He's starting to burn alive. I'm looking up, three rounds go through the window above me coming out from the inside and there's an awful lot of noise and screaming and all this, all the explosive entries are going off on all the other points. They were supposed to happen all at once, but they happen over about the next 15 seconds. And the guy who's hanging on the rope has got his hand forced against his radio pressel switch. So he's cut off all communications. So nobody can communicate with, with anybody else either. So the commanding officer is cut off from the men on the inside. Oh, jeez. <laughs> My job 
initially was to hold the back door and go anywhere where there's a problem. Um, I'm looking up at the guy above me burning. There's nothing I can do. The guys at the top on the roof are trying to cut the rope under, under tension. But if he's kicking himself from the flames, if he kicks out too far and they cut it at the wrong time, he's going to fall 40 feet onto concrete. So they've got to get the rope to part as he's on the inswing. So they're trying to do that. The guys are going through the window. A guy called Tommy Palmer goes through the window. His head catches fire. He comes back out, puts, the, puts his head out, takes off his gas mask, which is melting, throws it away and goes back into the gas and actually shoots two of the terrorists. Oh, um, Tom gets cut down with his legs burned. His pressel switch comes clear. The commanding officer says, go in. So me and my partner go in. And as we get inside in the lobby, um, we, can re we realize everybody's actually done their job. There's a chain of people going up the floors. And the police officer, Trevor Locke, who's been one of the hostages for the last week, is the first one down the stairs. He was our priority. Um, we pass him out the back door. Then the hostages start to come down. They go out the back door. Um, then a terrorist, then as the hostages are coming down, there's a commotion on the stairs. And there's one of the terrorists with a hand grenade in his hand. And as he comes clear at the bottom of the stairs, me and another person shoot him. And the grenade rolls from his hand, but the pin hasn't been pulled. The uh, other people go out. One of the terrorists gets out with the hostages. Um, he's separated on the grass outside afterwards. From the time we got the go, 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 it took seven minutes to clear the 54-room building completely to rescue those 19 people and have them secured on the ground outside. All that happened in <laughs> less seven than minutes. 10 minutes? <laughs> seven minutes, yeah. yeah. Ooh, that's the thing too. I think I think people are starting to realize that well, you had obviously time dilation, so that probably felt like what an hour and a half. <laughs> um, no, it, um, it it seemed short. Um, oh, really? Yeah, it seemed short. I mean, you know how your brain works really, really fast at those times. Um, so I understand what you mean by time dilation, but um, you've had the training, you've had the time. You've mm. we used to we used to shoot four hundred rounds a morning practicing each, um, practicing our draw and shoot, practicing our techniques, practicing different scenarios. So when it came to the real thing, it was just like an exercise. Things went wrong, they got put right. And um, it, was, it was an absolute success. And it be, it's still the marker for hostage rescue situations throughout the world. Awesome. You guys did a, a fabulous job, and I commend you on that. By the way, you can read more about it, folks. You only touched the tip of the iceberg. Uh, the book Again, the book is called Fighting Scared paramercenary SAS sniper and bodyguard intense stuff. I mean, I'm already, my heart rate's already going. I'm just listening to that story. Um, <laughs> what did you think about six days? Were you impressed by that? Or you thought nah, a bunch of Hollywood? I wrote, I wrote a, a review about it, which ripped it to shreds. It's <laughs> the most appalling piece of drivel that's ever been made on into a film. The, uh, there is absolutely no accuracy, but the worst thing about it of all is the characterizations of the individuals who play the parts in the film, but it's historically inaccurate. It's wrong. But the worst part for me was the fact that they portray us as mindless, staring, knife sharpening, Rambo type creatures, uh, rather than the intelligent, educated, uh, Green Beret 1960s type guys with degrees, people who can read languages, do explosives, do medicine, work alone. 
um, and people who are far, far better than the, uh, the way they've been portrayed. But it's an appalling piece of rubbish. I think actually your 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 uh, piece came out actually I think in the Daily Mail. Uh, That's right. Yeah, yeah. Talking about <laughs> yeah, it yeah. wasn't very good at all. They haven't redone it either, <laughs> have they? No. Um, the the best the best um, version of that the best story can be found on YouTube, which is SAS Embassy Siege, that oh, wow. was uh, produced and was a BAFTA winning BAFTA winning award winning um, uh, documentary, which was an hour and a half long. And it was called SAS Embassy Siege by Louise Norman and um, Peter Taylor. And that's the most accurate portrayal of that mission that will ever be made. It's absolutely brilliant. And I'm in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we I spent guess... 25, 25 years we never spoke about it at all. And that was the first time three of us ever spoke about it in that program. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I guess the day six obviously didn't have any. This is sound like it has any consultants on it or they didn't listen to him at all. I think they did have a consultant, but I, I actually say in my review, I, I think he was probably ignored in order to make a, a drama yeah. rather than to make a good program. It's, um, it's no, it, it's not good. And it, the thing about it is, the sad thing for me about it is it didn't credit the people. It gave the impression that there were a very small number of guys rather than a whole squadron that did this mission. It, um, it portrayed the real characters with the real names like the commanding officer Hector Gullen and the, 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 the regimental commander Mike Rose as some kind of uh, cartoons, cartoon characters. And uh, it was an insult. It was wrong. It was bad. That's one of the things, Robin, we try to do with this podcast is a lot of time when I noticed that, and how would you say that perception of the special forces, even here in the U.S., at least a couple of years back for sure, they always used to view them as a Rambo automaton type of individual. And the funny thing is, if you ever watched Rambo, he wasn't an automaton because in the last 10 minutes, they actually broke him down and you saw a human side of <laughs> Rambo, but everybody seems to forget that part of it. Um, but that's one of the purposes of the podcast is to illustrate that you guys are obviously incredible and for what you've done, but you're human as well. Well, I, um, I remember the um, I, some studies that I did about the uh, Green Berets in the 60s um, when they first went into Vietnam, uh, late 50s and 60s, when they, when they went in as advisors. And there were extremely small number of them, I think less than 500. And um, they all had degrees. They all were highly skilled and were specialists at the very, very highest level. Um, it was sad that they expanded the um, numbers without expanding the capability. The thing about special forces is special means small. So they had to form a new special forces, which was Delta and SEAL, to get SEALs to get back into that kind of very, very small, highly trained strategic forces. Um, as soon as you make something big, um, you, it loses its specialness, small is special. Interesting. Now, a couple of years later, you ended up um, with a different type of operation, Operation Sandy Wanderer. Maybe we'll go into that one. Well, actually, sure. Yeah, we'll go into that. And then maybe Operation yeah. Mikado. The interesting thing about these operations is I always find it fascinating with the special forces guys when you go to different terrains. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's so unique from Ireland over. Well, that's a hostage situation. Now you're heading over to um uh, where was this one? In Oman. What was going on there? 
Um, well, when I went there for Operation Sandy Wanderer, it was a training exercise, but uh, it was a medic. I, I had a medical role. So um, it's one of the actual missions that I was most proud of because um, I had to set up a medical clinic in the middle, the middle of the Omani Desert, in a place called the Wahiba Sands. And um, all the people, the people there were tribal. They lived out in the desert in their tents with their camels, um, some straight out of a movie. And um, I discovered uh, on, uh, on one particular day on one patrol about uh, 200 kilometers from our headquarters that um, the babies were dying of high temperatures. So um, I gave the parents pediatric dyspareunia to bring down their temperatures, took blood, and took it back 200 kilometers to a porter cabin we had. Uh, we had our microscopes, did smears, and um, looking for malaria. And there was a doctor there called Richard Villa, and we couldn't find malaria. So I took him back the 200 kilometers into the desert, located this particular group of people again and um he did he he said uh, he looked into the mouths of the children and they had little white spots in the tops of their mouths which are called coplic spots and those coplic spots were indicative of measles and the children were dying of measles and it wasn't only in this small group the bedu across that part of the desert were all suffering from the same problem so we got in touch with the sultan of oman and he flew in an inoculation team and they vaccinated um, the whole community, the whole Bedouin community out there in the desert. And uh, we saved hundreds of children's lives simply from that one small discovery. So very, very proud of that particular mission. Yeah, I imagine so. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Now, you know, you switched over. I'm going to kind of jump around a little bit. Because, well, kind of your timeline in your website. Again, folks, it's Robin Horsfall, <coughs> H-O-R-S-F-A-L-L dot C-O dot U-K. Um, then you became a bodyguard, which is really interesting. And you became a bodyguard for the Al-Fayed family. I'm assuming they're from Egypt. I think they were originally from Egypt. Yeah. 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 Closely uh, associated with the Sultan of Brunei. And they bought the, um, house of Fraser in London. Um, big business, um, living on park lane, living in the center of London, uh, looking after a millionaire. Um, I'd, I'd left the army uh, in 1984, purchased my discharge and uh, became a bodyguard. It was just a way of making a living and paying for my, for my wife and kids and growing family and mortgage. Um, so I spent 15 months looking after um, Mohammed Valfayed and occasionally his son Dodi, who uh, died with Princess Diana uh, in the car accident in France. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, it, it was just a job, really. Um, you, you move into this strange world where you sit and wait for somebody important to call upon your services. Um, it can be it's very dull in comparison to what I'd, what I'd been doing before. So I gave up on that and, um, and went off to Sri Lanka as a contract soldier, as a mercenary for the Sri Lankan government, but realised very quickly I was on the wrong side. Um, there were a lot of atrocities being carried out. There was a genocide taking place against the Tamils in the north of Sri Lanka. I was just a little man, so all I could do was resign and go home. But um, then got offered a job working for the other side. <laughs> um, <laughs> but my, gov my government put their foot down and said, uh, if you do that, we won't be very pleased with you. So I demurred and, um, and changed direction. <laughs> 
Now, what made you think to, to, I don't know if it was voluntary or involuntary to end your SAS career? I, again, this story's in Fighting Scared, but um, I got, we got use the term stitched up. Use that term, stitched up. When somebody set you up, um, I got oh. set up by somebody who didn't like me, who was a senior rank, and um, uh, for something I didn't do. And I knew that I was going to get sent back to the parachute regiment. I had a mortgage, I had a family, I had another child on the way. I had special forces pay and I couldn't afford to do it. So before they were able to put me on my commanding officer's orders uh, to be punished for something I hadn't done. I So when the colonel said to me, forceful, I have no alternative but to send you back to the parachute regiment. I said, that's all right, sir. I put my papers in to buy out yesterday. He said, don't do that, horseful. The wind blows cold on the outside. I said, it don't blow too warm in here, does it, sir? <laughs> <laughs> and I was out within two weeks. <laughs> I always did I like uh, how the British argue with each other. <laughs> <laughs> it's always very diplomatic. <laughs> uh, I think um, when you get into a situation where you know you're going down a river and you're going to go over the waterfall, um, you might as well dive. You know, you just, um, you take control. Um, it, it happens in life. It happens in institutions. It, happens, it may be the police. It may be the company you work for. It, it, you know, it can be anywhere. But if there's one or two people who are senior in authority to you who don't like you, then they can destroy your future and never let them get you down. Um, you manage before they came along, you'll manage afterwards. And um, I just changed direction. Um, incidentally, they, they, an officer came to me four weeks later and asked me if I wanted to come back because an injustice had been done. But by that time, I was earning twice as much money as I'd been earning in the army. Oh, so wow. I, uh, partly out of bitterness and petulance, I said, no, I'm, I'm okay, thanks very much, and, <laughs> and moved on. It freed me up to explore my potential. There you go. They yeah. did you a favor. Yep. Let me ask you this. Now, you went over to the world of martial arts. Uh, I don't know how long you've been practicing and what forms you practice. So I guess I'll ask you, <laughs> how long have you been practicing martial arts and what did you practice? Well, I, uh, I started martial arts when I was in the SAS because everything I did was um, with guns. So I went down the local town in Hereford and joined a, a karate club and it, it gripped me. It, it, um, I could fight, but I could only fight with viciousness and aggression. This um, skill didn't only teach me to fight. It taught me to control my temper. It taught me to grow up in many ways and become a more confident and happier person as well. Um, and from that point onwards, I, 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 I continuously trained in martial arts nonstop for 30 years. Oh, wow. Uh, I, started, um, I started a martial arts organization in London called Oldest son, Alex, now run. I'm sorry, what's it called and, again? Uh, it's called London Karate. It's available at londonkarate.co.uk. Um, so that uh, you can find out about it there. But I broke my neck when I was, uh, how old was I? 54. I broke my neck training with my oldest son in martial arts. Oh, wow. Um, accidentally. And uh, so, I, again, I had to change direction. Fortunately, I trained him well enough to take over the organization we got had at that time had over a thousand students mostly children wow. 
and uh, Alex is still running that now. But um, I couldn't I couldn't do it anymore. My neck was broken at about C three C four, and um, so at the age of fifty four, I went to university as an undergrad to do uh, creative writing and English literature, and graduated when I was fifty nine. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Nobody wants to sit next to their grandpa at school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you graduated in 2016. That's that's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Let yeah. me ask you this: uh, favorite author in English lit? Oh, my favorite author. Um, I think some of my favorite works are Seamus Heaney's um, translation of Beowulf. Oh, okay. Oh, Beowulf. Yeah. yeah, very good. Yeah. Uh, any um, are you Oscar Wilde fan at all or no? Um, I've uh, I've watched them. The the um, I've I've watched some Oscar Oscar Wilde plays, but um, no, not really. No. Uh, I would I would go back as far as Dickens. I think I love Dickens. Oh, I love the personal uh, stories and the morality that goes with the stories of Dickens. Um, and when I write myself, I try to always have some some message some uh, fable Aesop fable type uh, <laughs> lesson that goes with what I'm writing so though the, the Dickens I, I would think I love Dickens in the modern era um, I tend to read a, I tend to read an awful lot of politics rather than rather than literature but I I have about five books around the house um, where depending which mood I'm in and which room I'm in I'll pick up something and read it. Um, I do. Um, I do love reading Barack Obama's works. Actually, I have read his speeches. I think they're inspiring. I do. Uh, I admire is somebody I actually admire quite a lot. Um, as a international statesman, not just as a president of the United States. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I read. I read an eclectic spread of things. Yeah, you do. And I know in your books, Last Words of the Wise Old Paratrooper, you, you seem to be going in a lot of different directions, too, in that. Because you had, uh, well, tell us a little bit about that book, and then we'll wrap up with Fighting Scare. We'll get a little bit more out of you, and then we'll I kind of believe it's well, already almost over. Well, the Words of the Wise Old Paratrooper and the other two, they're a trilogy of little experimental books. They're anthologies and, correct, and collections of short stories and anecdotes and maxims and poems that I've written. Um, Fighting Scared is my autobiography, but the um, the Labour of Love is actually um, Warrior Poet Soldiers Songs, which is an illustrated book of my own poems. There's 50 poems in there, which are a poetic version of my entire life uh, about my friends. They've got suicide, they've got love, depression, war, um, all the other all the things that, that go on in a in a life like mine, and they're they're there in that um, in that uh, small book. Um, and uh, my colleague and illustrator, Tommy Brabham, took my photographs and turned them into graphic works of art, which um, enhanced the book tr tremendously. But people like to quote poetry, but they don't like to buy it. <laughs> so it's a, it's a labor of love. <laughs> uh, again, folks, you can find more about Robin at Robin Horseful. That's H-O-R-S-F-A-L-L dot C-O dot U-K. Go check out the books as well on Amazon. Fascinating story, fighting scared, para, mercenary, SAS, sniper, and bodyguard. Robin, I can't believe we're down to our last few minutes, but I could be here all day talking about this stuff. <laughs> it's really amazing <laughs> stuff. Um, 
now, I guess a couple of questions. One is, what are you working on now? Is it you're you're, you're still writing books, but is there anything else? Because you seem like you you have a diverse yeah. uh, flair of interest. Well, well, I'm doing corporate speaking now that COVID's come to an end. I'm I'm, I'm getting my circuit uh, talking to corporations about and their staff about overcoming adversity, um, which is a big part of my own personal story. Um, so I'm getting I'm getting quite busily booked up for Christmas for, for that kind of thing. Um, but my my real challenge is to um, is to write a novel because a novel is the most um, difficult part of literature and I want to do what is most difficult and most hard because you have to create those creatures. You have to create the characters. You have to remember where you left them. And then you have to sculpt it into a book that's interesting. So I know the whole story in my head. Now I've got to put it onto paper. And I'm only 25,000 words in. So it's going to take me a little while. <laughs> only? Right. Yeah. What is that? That's about uh, 100 pages? No, 10 pages. No, 100 pages. Yeah, it's, it's not a lot. It's, it's, it's about 21 pages, 22 pages. 20 pages right until now. you double space it, yeah. Yeah, that's right, double spacing. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever read Jack Carr or uh, Brad Thor, any of those guys? Or? You know, one of my weaknesses is that I, I, I know the stories I've read, but I don't remember the, um, the authors. I don't focus. It's a bit like I'll know no. a song, but I won't know who sang it. I'll know all the words, <laughs> but I won't know who sang it. <laughs> <laughs> that's too funny i guess my last question is there any movie that really stood out for you over the years <clears throat> that you really enjoyed anything that stood out uh one flew over the cuckoo's nest oh wow that's uh, an old one that's yeah. amazing um my favorite uh, tv series would be um band of brothers uh stephen ambrose uh, book um brilliantly done Brilliantly told. As a paratrooper, looking at paratroopers, telling their own real stories and supporting it. Uh, the other HBO version, The Pacific, is fantastic. Um, I think uh, my test of a good movie is one that I'll go back and see again and again and again. My, one of my big favourites as well is A Beautiful Mind um, about um, the guy who had uh, paranoid schizophrenia. And I had a, a, an extremely close friend who, I, who, who killed himself, who had paranoid schizophrenia called Charles Bruce. Mm -hmm. And it, the film uh, made me understand um, his problem in great depth. Wonderful, wonderful film. Uh, a Beautiful Mind. Uh, Russell, Russell Crowe. Yeah, that was a great movie. I remember yeah. that movie. They did a really yeah. good job on that, too. He did. And opened a lot of eyes for people. A very powerful devastating yeah. disorders folks again it's robin horseful h-o-r-s-f-a-l-l.co.uk robin i can't thank you enough for the time you spent with us today <laughs> it's been a pleasure it's lovely when you give a man a chance to talk about himself <laughs> <laughs> yeah it doesn't always happen in my house all right well thank you so much again for this opportunity folks go check out robinhorseful.co.uk check out the books as well we highly recommend it yeah you know what to do share subscribe hit that like button thank you everyone for listening stay safe out there with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.